Book Nine, Chapter Five of the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. League of the Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Ortsy. Book Nine, The Cabaret de la Liberté, Chapter Five. The whole of that night, Esther remained shut up in her apartment in the Petite Rue Turin. All night she heard the measured tramp, the movements, the laughter and loud talking of men outside her door. Once or twice she tried to listen to what they said. But the doors and walls in these houses of old Paris were too stout to allow voices to filter through, save in the guise of a confused murmur. She would have felt horribly lonely and frightened, but for the fact that in one window on the third floor in the house opposite, the light of a lamp appeared like a glimmer of hope. Jack Kennard was there, on the watch. He had the window open and sat beside it until a very late hour, and after that he kept the light in as a beacon to bid her be of good cheer. In the middle of the night he made an attempt to see her, hoping to catch the sentinels asleep or absent. But, having climbed the five stories of the house wherein she dwelt, he arrived on the landing outside her door and found there half a dozen ruffians squatting on the stone floor and engaged in playing hazard with a pack of greasy cards. That wretched consumptive Rateau was with them, and made a facetious remark as Kennard, pale and haggard, almost ghost-like, with a white bandage round his head, appeared upon the landing. "'Go back to bed, citizen,' the odious creature said, with a raucous laugh. "'We are taking care of your sweetheart for you.' Never in all his life had Jack Kennard felt so abjectly wretched as he did then, so miserably helpless. There was nothing he could do save to return to the lodging, which a kind friend had lent to him for the occasion, and from whence he could, at any rate, see the windows behind which his beloved was watching and suffering. When he went a few moments ago, he had left the port cochere ajar. Now he pushed it open and stepped into the dark passage beyond. A tiny streak of light filtrated through a small curtained window in the concierge's lodge. It served to guide Kennard to the foot of the narrow stone staircase which led to the floors above. Just at the foot of the stairs, on the mat, a white paper glimmered in the dim shaft of light. He paused, puzzled, quite certain that the paper was not there five minutes ago when he went out. Oh, it may have fluttered in from the courtyard beyond, or from anywhere, driven by the draft. But even so, with that mechanical action peculiar to most people under like circumstances, he stooped and picked up the paper, turned it over between his fingers, and saw that a few words were scribbled on it in pencil. The light was too dim to read by, so Kennard, still quite mechanically, kept the paper in his hand and went up to his room. There, by the light of the lamp, he read the few words scribbled in pencil. Wait in the street outside. Nothing more. The message was obviously not intended for him, and yet a strange excitement possessed him. If it should be, if he had heard, everyone had, of the mysterious agencies that were at work, under cover of darkness, to aid the unfortunate, the innocent, the helpless. He had heard of that legendary English gentleman who had before now defied the closest vigilance of the committees and snatched their intended victims out of their murderous clutches, at times under their very eyes. 
if this should be... He scarce dared put his hope into words. He could not bring himself really to believe. But he went. He ran downstairs and out into the street, took his stand under a projecting doorway nearly opposite the house which held the woman he loved, and leaning against the wall, he waited. After many hours, it was then past three o'clock in the morning, and the sky of an inky blackness, he felt so numb that, despite his will, a kind of trance-like drowsiness overcame him. He could no longer stand on his feet. His knees were shaking. His head felt so heavy that he could not keep it up. It rolled round from shoulder to shoulder, as if his will no longer controlled it, and it ached furiously. Everything around him was very still. Even Paris by night, that grim and lurid giant, was for the moment at rest. A warm summer rain was falling, its gentle pattering murmur into the gutter helped to lull Kennard's senses into somnolence. He was on the point of dropping off to sleep when something suddenly roused him. A noise of men shouting and laughing. Familiar sounds enough in these squalid Paris streets. But Kennard was wide awake now. Numbness had given place to intense quivering of all his muscles, and super-keenness of his every sense. He peered into the darkness and strained his ears to hear. The sound certainly appeared to come from the house opposite, and there, too, it seemed as if something or things were moving. Men, more than one or two, surely. Kennard thought that he could distinguish at least three distinct voices, and there was that weird, racking cough which proclaimed the presence of Rateau. Now the men were quite close to where he, Kennard, still stood cowering. A minute or two later they had passed down the street. Their hoarse voices soon died away in the distance. Kennard crept cautiously out of his hiding place. Message or mere coincidence, he now blessed that mysterious scrap of paper. Had he remained in his room, he might really have dropped off to sleep and not heard these men going away. There were three of them at least. Kennard thought four. But anyway, the number of watchdogs outside the door of his beloved had considerably diminished. He felt that he had strength to grapple with them, even if there were still three of them left. He, an athlete, English and master of the art of self-defense, and they, a mere pack of drink-sodden brutes. Yes, he was quite sure he could do it. Quite sure that he could force his way into Esther's room and carry her off in his arms. Whither, God alone knew, and God alone would provide. Just for a moment he wondered if, while he was in that state of somnolence, other bandits had come to take the place of those that were going. But this thought he quickly dismissed. In any case, he felt a giant strength in himself, and could not rest now till he had tried once more to see her. He crept very cautiously along, and was satisfied that the street was deserted. Already he had reached the house opposite, had pushed open the porte-cochere, which was on the latch, when, without the slightest warning, he was suddenly attacked from behind. His arms seized and held behind his back with a vice-like grip, whilst a vigorous kick against the calves of his legs caused him to lose his footing and suddenly brought him down sprawling and helpless in the gutter, while in his ear there rang the hideous sound of the consumptive ruffian's racking cough. "'What shall we do with the cub now?' a raucous voice came out of the darkness. "'Let him lie there,' was the quick response. "'It'll teach him to interfere with the work of honest patriots.' Kennard, lying somewhat bruised and stunned, heard this decree with thankfulness. The bandits obviously thought him more hurt than he was, 
and if only they would leave him lying here, he would soon pick himself up and renew his attempt to go to Esther. He did not move, feigning unconsciousness. Even though he felt, rather than saw, that hideous rateau stooping over him, heard his stertorous breathing, the wheezing in his throat. Run and fetch a bit of cord, Citizen Desmond, the wretch said presently. A trust cub is safer than a loose one. This dashed Kennard's hope to a great extent. He felt that he must act quickly before those brigands returned and rendered him completely helpless. He made a movement to rise, a movement so swift and sudden as only a trained athlete can make. But quick as he was, that odious wheezing creature was quicker still, and now, when Kennard had turned on his back, Rateau promptly sat on his chest, a dead weight with long legs stretched out before him, coughing and sputtering, yet wholly at his ease. Oh, the humiliating position for an amateur middleweight champion to find himself in with that drink-sodden. Kennard was sure that he was drink-sodden, consumptive, sprawling on top of him. Don't trouble, citizen Desmont, the wretch cried out after his retreating companions. I have what I want by me. Very leisurely he pulled a coil of rope out of the capacious pocket of his tattered coat. Kennard could not see what he was doing, but felt it with supersensitive instinct all the time. He lay quite still beneath the weight of that miscreant, feigning unconsciousness, yet hardly able to breathe. That tuberculous caitiff was such a towering weight, but he tried to keep his faculties on the alert, ready for that surprise spring which would turn the tables at the slightest false move on the part of Rateau. But, as luck would have it, Rateau did not make a single false move. It was amazing with what dexterity he kept Canard down, even while he contrived to pinion him with cords. An old sailor, probably, he seemed so dexterous with knots. My God, the humiliation of it all! And Esther, a helpless prisoner inside that house, not five paces away. Canard's heavy, wearied eyes could perceive the light in her window, five stories above where he lay in the gutter, a helpless log. Even now he gave a last desperate shriek. Esther! But in a second the abominable brigand's hand came down heavily upon his mouth, whilst a raucous voice spluttered rather than said right through the awful fit of coughing. Another sound, and I'll gag you as well as bind you, you young fool. After which Kennard remained quite still. End of Book Nine, Chapter Five